Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. The CDC acknowledges for the first time publicly that it gave false information on COVID-19 safety monitoring. Now a senator is demanding answers. Some close races in yesterday's primaries find out who the winners are from New Hampshire, Rhode Island, and Delaware. Voluntarily giving up one's gun rights. The FBI gave people the option to do so if they think they're a danger to themselves or to others due to mental health issues. But some are saying what the Bureau did was illegal. Across the board, inflation is hurting American families. We bring you an economist who helps navigate this complex issue and give some advice on how to weather the economic storm. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has acknowledged publicly for the first time that the agency gave false information about how it monitored COVID-19 vaccine safety. That's according to a recent letter made public Monday. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more on what the CDC director said. CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky recently said in a letter to Republican Senator Ron Johnson that the agency did not analyze certain types of adverse event reports at all in 2021 even though the agency previously said it did. It goes back to a promise the CDC made earlier in the pandemic. The agency said it would perform a type of analysis called Proportional Reporting Ratio, or PRR, on reports submitted to the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. In July, a CDC official told the Epoch Times the CDC started performing PRRs in February 2021. But just weeks later, the CDC said that official was wrong. Instead, it said it performed the PRRs this year from March 25th to July 31st. Walensky's new letter to Senator Johnson shows that Walensky is aware the CDC gave false information, but she did not explain why that happened. Now Senator Johnson is demanding answers. He asked Walensky why the CDC did not perform PRRs until March of this year and why the agency misinformed the public. Back in August, a CDC spokesperson told the Epoch Times, at no time have any CDC employees intentionally provided false information. They claimed the false information was given because the CDC thought the paper was asking about a different type of analysis called empirical Bayesian or EB data mining. But the paper says it specifically asked about PRRs. The CDC still has not provided the results of the PRRs to the Epoch Times or Johnson. Walensky alleged in her new letter that EB data mining is more reliable and that the PRR results were generally consistent with the EB data mining, revealing no additional unexpected safety signals. But Senator Johnson said because the CDC hasn't shared those results with Congress or the American people, the public cannot verify whether what she said is true or not. NTD reached out to the CDC for comment. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. More on the vaccine, the Biden administration is not enforcing their COVID-19 vaccine mandate for federal contractors. This follows a court decision that enables the government to enforce the rule in some places. The White House quietly updated its website to say the government won't implement President Biden's executive order. The order mandates COVID-19 vaccines for federal contractors. This applies to new workers as well as people with an existing contract. That's not the only update. They also clarify that contractors can screen themselves for COVID-19 symptoms and don't need to be verified. The government didn't respond to a request for comment on why it decided not to enforce the order. On their website, it says they want to comply with ongoing litigation. According to current court decisions, they could enforce the order in 39 states. 
In other news, nearly 1,300 New York Times employees are telling their management team they would rather go on strike than return to the office. They were supposed to return to the office this week, but they simply refused. The workers issued a letter saying they will continue to produce high-quality work remotely. Backed up by the Times Guild Union, the workers say if managers try to force them into the office, they will go on strike. The union argues any return-to-office policy should be part of a negotiated contract. The Times management says it has listened to employees to design a gradual and flexible return to office. Documents are surfacing showing the FBI asked some people to sign away their gun rights voluntarily. A national gun rights group says what the Bureau did was illegal. Here's that story. FBI officials asked some Americans to fill out a form, which led to their records being added to the National Instant Criminal Background Check System, or NISC, which prohibits them from buying firearms. It's a system that licensed gun dealers can check to see if a purchaser can legally own a gun. This is the form where people could declare that they have a mental health condition and are thus a danger to themselves and to others, or they can't manage details of their life. Republican Senator Marsha Blackburn said about the forms, you cannot sign away your constitutional rights, despite what the FBI wishes. Under federal law, a person is prohibited from buying or owning firearms only if he or she has been deemed to be mentally defective or committed to a mental institution. Another indicator that the form is not legal is that there is currently a bill in the U.S. House that would change federal law to allow for people with mental health issues to put themselves onto a do-not-sell list for firearms. The lawmakers who introduced the bill say it aims to curb gun suicides, which they say happens more than 20,000 times a year. They say 6 out of 10 gun-related deaths are suicides, and that such a list could help prevent people from dying. National gun rights group Gun Owners of America says the people who filled out the FBI's form weren't supposed to be entered into NICS. They wrote a letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland in the FBI explaining that the law on background checks says if a person is wrongly entered into NICS, the agency has 30 days to remove the record. NTD reached out to the FBI to ask why they handed out the forms and if they'll abide by the 30-day deadline, but didn't hear back before broadcast. The forms were given out between 2017 and 2019. An FBI spokesperson told the Daily Caller, which first reported about the forms, that they were discontinued in December 2019. Turning now to politics, the last of the primary elections wrapped up last night. Midterms are now just eight weeks away. We first take a look at the races in New Hampshire. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg takes us through the results. The race for New Hampshire's Senate seat was one of the most closely watched in Tuesday's primaries. New Hampshire is a battleground state that analysts believe will play a part in determining control of the 100-seat Senate. Incumbent Democratic Senator Maggie Hassan easily won her party's nomination against her token contenders with close to 95% of the vote. Republicans believe Hassan can be unseated in November's general election. On the GOP side, it was a tight race between Don Bolduck and Chuck Morse. Bolduck is projected to emerge victorious from that close contest. Bolduck is a retired Army Brigadier General. Some Republicans fear he is too conservative for swing voters in the general election. Morse is backed by the national Republican group White Mountain Pack and seen as more of a moderate. Some Democratic groups sponsored primary ads promoting Bolduck, predicting he'd make an easier opponent for Hassan. In the race for governor, Chris Sununu won the Republican Party's nomination for another term. Democrat Tom Sherman ran unopposed. Sununu is heavily favored to beat Sherman. 
Many national Republicans were disappointed Sununu chose not to run for Senate and instead opt for re-election, as they felt he would be able to easily defeat Hassan. In New Hampshire's House primaries, Carolyn Levitt beat Matt Mowers in District 1 on the GOP side. Levitt worked in the Trump White House as Assistant Press Secretary. For Democrats, incumbent Representative Chris Pappas ran unopposed for his party's nomination. Pappas is perceived as one of the most vulnerable House Democrats by Republicans. For District 2, Democrat incumbent Annie Custer ran uncontested. She will likely be challenged by Bob Burns in the general election, who is projected to win on the Republican side. Republicans only need to pick up four seats to take control of the 435-seat House. Both of New Hampshire's seats are expected to be competitive in November. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And in Rhode Island, incumbent Governor Dan McKee wins the Democratic primary. It was a narrow victory with the second and third contenders close behind him. McKee beat former CVS executive Helena Folks and Secretary of State Nellie Gorbea. Folks saw a late surge in the polls and won a last-minute endorsement from the Boston Globe's editorial board. McKee ran an ad during his campaign featuring a special guest, his 94-year-old mother. In that video, he touts his accomplishments during a game of cards with her, to which he replies, not bad for a governor that lives with his mother. That one stuck. Some of his supporters echoed that line at his victory speech. McKee will face the Republican nominee, Ashley Kalis, in the general election. Kalis is a business owner and political newcomer. McKee is heavily favored to win in the blue state. Primaries in all states are now wrapped up, except in Louisiana, which votes directly on November 8th. Louisiana uses a top-two system. All candidates are on the same ballot regardless of their party affiliation. If no candidate gets over 50% of the vote to win outright, the top-two finishers advance to a second election in December. And President Biden makes an impromptu appearance in his home state of Delaware. He made the trip to cast his vote in the state's primary election, despite being able to vote by mail. The president was accompanied by First Lady Jill Biden for the trip. The pair flew in via Air Force One to their weekend home in Wilmington, Delaware. Two motorcades and local police protection also mobilized for the brief jaunt. Asked why he had decided to fly in yesterday, Biden simply said to vote. And he was only in the stage for about an hour. Biden is able to vote by absentee ballot, so it's unclear why he made the extra trip. There was also early in-person voting over the weekend when Biden was home. Sitting presidents often return home to vote, but critics point out that using the plane doesn't accord with Biden's focus on clean energy and costs taxpayer money. Polls closed at 8 p.m. last night. There were no high-profile races listed on the ballot. Next, we discuss inflation in the U.S. It remained high in August. We bring you an economist who breaks down the numbers and gives some advice to Americans. Joining us now is free market economist Vance Ginn. He's also the founder and president of Ginn Economic Consulting. So glad you can make it on today, Vance. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. The U.S. inflation rate came in at 8.3% in August. This is a little bit more than the market forecast and slightly less than the reading in July. Can you give us an indication of why that's the case? Well, one thing that we're seeing is inflation continues to go up and at a rapid pace. You know, some say that the inflation rate, especially the Federal Reserve, they try to target a rate of close to 2%. Well, we're four times higher than that right now as we're seeing prices go up all around us. Gasoline prices are still up 25% year over year. Just that headline rate of inflation of 8.3% is the highest since January of 1982, so more than 40 years ago. And if you exclude the more volatile food and energy 
prices are still up 6.3% over the last year, which is the highest since August of 1982. So in other words, we've got a lot of inflation and it's not just you know, energy and food, it's really across the board. And we're seeing that go up more and more over time, which is hurting a lot of families who are already struggling to pay the bills and everything else. And so this is just a, a big time struggle for many people that are out there. You touched on food and gas. Now the costs for food, shelter and medical care are up, but gas prices are down. So how does this affect the overall rate? Well, gasoline prices are down from their peaks from not too long ago, but they're still up 25% year over year. And so it, it, it's one thing to see month over month or a couple months, but how are people actually doing over time? And what we're seeing is, is that people's wages are not keeping up with inflation. Uh, in fact, if you adjust for inflation, wages are down 3.4%. What that means is, is that you can't buy as much, you can buy 3.4% less of a basket of goods and services compared to what you could buy a year ago. So this is a, a huge hit. And even though it was better than some expected, this is still way too high. And even President Biden was out yesterday celebrating some things that was going on in the economy. I don't know how you can celebrate interest rates soaring. This is not a good situation. So what can Americans do to offset the burden of this inflation right now? I think the big thing right now is just to, to try to save where you can, put, put, put money in the bank, uh, savings account, and that way you, it allows you to save for any sort of price increases for the future, for interest rates going up and things of that nature, but also you know, take fewer trips to the store or other areas, um, be more efficient with your time. That's one of our most scarce resources. And so if you can be more efficient with your time, then you can save money along the way and find those good deals. There still are gonna be those markdowns from time to time. If you can find those deals, that's gonna help you to have more money in your budget for other items. And stocking up less trips to the store, that's less gas. Yes, exactly. And well, now let's talk about college students. I mean, how does this inflation affect them? I mean, they have loans. They do have loans and you know if, if wages if they are earning wages um, then their wages may be going up faster than the interest rate which right now um, those student loan payments have been suspended throughout the rest of this year so you might be able to pay some of those loans down so that way whenever they start coming back in january you could have more funds to pay for them but again that's going to be a big hit for some people who are paying those student loans over time i know there's this discussion now by president biden with his executive order to forgive or, or cancel what i've really been calling a redistribution scheme from those who didn't go to college and don't have student loans to everyone who has student loans. And you know, only about 33% of Americans um, have graduated with a bachelor's degree. So this is a huge shift in the amount of money that people are paying for. And what it does is it also fuels more inflation because the way that inflation comes about is where Congress is overspending, increasing the national debt. The Federal Reserve prints that money, puts more money into circulation. And if there's too much money chasing too few goods, like we've seen over the last year, or so, then that increases inflation. And that's again going to hit where student loans and this so-called forgiveness is going to continue to raise the inflation rate, which hurts those that have, have been to college and have student loans and those that have not. Very glad to have this in-depth analysis. Vance Ginn, Ginn Economic Consulting, pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much. Have a great day. And just ahead, a judge in Virginia has dismissed the Loudoun County Commonwealth's attorney from a case over impartiality concerns. The case made national headlines, and it involves a father who spoke out at a school board meeting about his daughter being sexually assaulted by a boy in a school bathroom. Stay tuned for more in just a minute.
An update on special counsel John Durham's probe into the FBI's crossfire hurricane investigation. According to a new filing by Durham's team, the main source for the anti-Trump Steele dossier was paid by the FBI for years. And he once said in an email that he was working on a project, quote, against Trump. The investigation ultimately found no collusion between Trump and Russia during the 2016 presidential election. Durham's probe is focusing on alleged misconduct by the DOJ during the investigation. Durham's team says the source, Igor Danchenko, was a paid informant for the FBI from March 2017 until October 2020. Danchenko is a Russian national who lives in the United States. He's scheduled to be tried in October on five counts of lying to the FBI. When asked by the Epic Times, the FBI declined to comment on the matter, referring to the Department of Justice. The DOJ did not respond to a query. More on the FBI, MyPillow CEO Mike Lindell says that the FBI seized his phone on Tuesday. Lindell recounted the story on his live stream show, The Lindell Report. Lindell and a travel buddy pulled into a Hardee's drive-thru in Minnesota when his car was surrounded by FBI agents. He says the agents asked him about voting machines in Colorado and Colorado Mesa County Clerk Tina Peters. The clerk oversees the county's elections and recently pleaded not guilty to charges related to an election equipment security breach. According to the warrant, Lindell's phone was subpoenaed as part of a federal grand jury investigation in Colorado. The warrant notes that he should not, quote, disclose the existence of the subpoena for an indefinite period of time. The incident comes as multiple allies of former President Donald Trump have had their phones taken by the FBI amid investigations. The Epic Times contacted the FBI for further comment. Let's go to Virginia, where a judge has removed the Loudoun County District Attorney from prosecuting a case. It was a case that made national headlines last year during parent protests against the Loudoun County School Board. Here's more. Back in June 2021, a father in Virginia named Scott Smith made national headlines by protesting the Loudoun County public school system at a school board meeting. He said his daughter was sexually assaulted in the girls' bathroom at her high school by a boy in a skirt. The school district transferred the boy to a different high school where he assaulted another girl. The allegations sparked more parents' protests against the school board and became a focal point during the gubernatorial election that year. The male student was later convicted of sexual assault and Smith was convicted of a misdemeanor for disorderly conduct at the school board meeting. The father has been trying to appeal. Earlier this month, Judge James Plowman from a Virginia circuit court removed Loudoun County Commonwealth's attorney, Buddha Bibberai, from prosecuting Smith on the charge of disorderly conduct. The judge wrote, quote, The concerns about the public confidence in the integrity of the prosecution, as well as the defendant's concerns regarding the impartiality of the Commonwealth's attorney, are sufficiently grounded. As a result, the integrity of the defendant's due process rights is in jeopardy and must be protected. Smith's attorney welcomed the decision, telling Fox News, quote, The court's order today has corrected in some measure the injustice created by Mr. Bibberai's bias against Mr. Smith, and the court has restored his hope for a fair trial on the remaining charge against him in his quest to protect his beloved daughter. We are very grateful for the court's ruling. Stafford County Commonwealth's attorney Eric Olson will now handle Smith's appeal on the count of disorderly conduct. Bibberai, who is reportedly backed by billionaire George Soros, told WTOP, quote, I'm surprised by the court's decision since I was never given the opportunity to come back and have conversations about the disorderly conduct. 
On to social media. A Twitter whistleblower testified before senators on Tuesday. He said that Twitter executives appeared unmoved when they were notified of allegations that a Chinese spy was working for the company. And today's Jason Perry has the story. What I discovered when I joined Twitter was that this enormously influential company was over a decade behind industry security standards. Peter Zatko, also known as Mudge, is the former head of security at Twitter. He testified that many Twitter employees had unnecessary access to users' personal information. And this kind of vulnerability is not in the abstract. It's not far-fetched to say that employee inside the company could take over the accounts of all of the senators in this room. Senator Chuck Grassley explained that it was more than just Twitter employees with such access. Because of Mudge's disclosures, we've learned that personal data from Twitter users was potentially exposed to foreign intelligence agencies. Senator Mike Lee wanted to know why Twitter hasn't done more to increase data security. I think they would like to, but they're simply unwilling to put the effort in at the cost of other uh, efforts such as driving revenue. Um, I'm reminded of one conversation with an executive when I said, I am confident that we have a foreign agent, and their response was, well, since we already have one, what does it matter if we have more? Let's keep growing the office. NTD received the following reply from Twitter. Twitter's hiring process is independent of any foreign influence, and access to data is managed through background checks and other measures. The Delaware judge overseeing the Elon Musk versus Twitter case ruled last week that Musk can include new evidence related to Zach Goh's allegations in the trial, which is set to start October 17th. Jason Perry, NTD News. The National Transportation Safety Board, or NTSB, says they found the wreckage of a float plane on the seafloor. It crashed into waters near Washington State last week. The NTSB said the depth and motion of the water hid the wreckage for several days. They used sonar to locate the wreckage of the plane. It was about 190 feet below the surface of the Puget Sound near Whidbey Island. Because of the depth and the currents, the NTSB is seeking a remotely operated vehicle to recover the wreckage. The agency says they can't determine the cause of the crash until they find more of the wreckage. On September 4th, 10 people were on the flight from the San Juan Islands to the Seattle suburb of Renton when it crashed. So far, only one body has been found. NASA is planning on crashing a spacecraft into an asteroid. In about two weeks, NASA scientists will slam a refrigerator-sized spacecraft into an asteroid called Dimorphos. The crash is a test, and the asteroid is not threatening Earth. Scientists, however, want to see if the collision can change the asteroid's orbit. It's the first test of its kind and could be a crucial step in learning how effective a crash could be in protecting the Earth from potentially being hit by an asteroid. The mission is expected to happen September 26th. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And coming up, for Beijing, is controlling its own citizens more important than national defense? Their budget seems to indicate it is. We examine the growing gap between what it calls stability funding and military spending. And Google and Meta, Facebook's parent company, are facing millions of dollars in fines. South Korea says the company violated privacy law. Find out more right here on NTD News.
Welcome back. South Korea is fining Google and Facebook parent Meta for privacy law violations. Meta considers fighting the decision in court. Google and Meta violated the law by collecting and analyzing their users' behavioral information from other companies and used that information to make inferences about users' interests or used them for customized advertisements without clearly notifying them in advance. South Korea's Personal Information Protection Commission said it fined Google the equivalent of $50 million and Meta $22 million. It's the largest penalty South Korea has imposed for tech privacy violations, and it's the country's first action against tech companies collecting behavioral information to target online ads. Google did not have an immediate comment. A Meta spokesperson said the company hasn't done anything illegal and doesn't agree with the decision. The spokesperson said Meta could go to court. In recent years, other countries have also gone after Facebook and Google over their privacy practices. In 2019, France fined Google $57 million, and they fined Facebook $267 million in 2021. Germany is in a legal confrontation with Meta to stop their data gathering practices. For the first time in years, North Korea has released propaganda posters about its nuclear weapons. The country enshrined its nuclear policy into law last week. Pyongyang seemed to reaffirm that change by unveiling the posters featuring its nuclear-tipped ballistic missiles. The posters, released by state news agency KCNA, display a number of North Korea's latest missiles, including its Hwasong-15 and Hwasong-17 intercontinental ballistic missiles, or ICBMs. Last week, state media reported that Pyongyang made into law the right to use preemptive nuclear strikes in order to protect itself. Leader Kim Jong-un said in a speech that the law made the country's nuclear policy irreversible and bars any further denuclearization talks. This year, North Korea resumed testing their ICBMs for the first time since 2017. International observers say it also appears to be preparing for a nuclear test. What's higher on China's priority list than growing its military? One report says so-called social stability. Its funding was 7% higher than defense spending in 2020, more than doubling in 10 years. Let's take a look. China's national military budget is approaching U.S. levels. But Beijing's spending on measures to control its citizens totals 7% higher than defense as of 2020. That's according to a report from Japanese newspaper Nikkei Asia late last month. The report says in 2020, China spent up to $210 billion on controlling what it calls domestic stability. A China affairs analyst says the Chinese communist regime has been investing hugely in the area for a decade, and that this portion of its budget started to exceed its defense spending as early as 2009. The issue of this social instability in the eyes of the Chinese Communist Party, in their eyes, was very urgent and very serious even by that time. As the Chinese Communist regime strengthens its control on public order and restrictions on public speech, more social issues have started to emerge. In one case, looking at central China's Henan province, authorities blocked victims of a mass banking freeze from protesting. That's through using China's mandatory health codes, which are part of the country's contact tracing system. Depositors can't withdraw their money. That's the result of their rule. But the more control it has, the more problems it creates, because it does not solve any of the social problems. It only uses such overbearing means. It will hire many triads to suppress people's demand for 
for their rights. The report also notes that Beijing has extended its supply camera coverage. Now virtually all residential and business areas are under surveillance, as are many of the country's streets. The Women's Tennis Association is going back to China for tournaments. They haven't played in the country since a Chinese player went missing last year. NTD's Tiffany Meyer has more with China in Focus. The Women's Tennis Association is planning a return to China for tournaments in 2023. This comes after the head of the association suspended all tournaments in China last year over concerns about a Chinese player's safety. At the time, the action was estimated to cost the WTA hundreds of millions of dollars, with China being one of its biggest markets. Some background on the Chinese player that went missing. Her name is Peng Shuai, one of the biggest sports stars in China. She's a former world number one for tennis doubles. Things took a turn after she posted a statement on Chinese social media, accusing a former top Beijing official of sexual assault. Within 20 minutes, her post was removed from Chinese internet websites, and Peng disappeared from public view. Many in the West were concerned about her safety. The WTA was among the first at the time to call out Beijing and question Peng's safety, followed by the White House. Later on, staffers from Chinese state-controlled media outlet posted video clips of Pong as proof that she's alive and well. But the WTA wasn't pacified. The head of the organization, Steve Simon, suspended tournaments in China, one of its biggest markets. In a statement, he said in good conscience he doesn't see how he can ask WTA athletes to compete there when Peng Shuai is not allowed to communicate freely and has seemingly been pressured to contradict her allegation of sexual assault. Still to come, the U.S., Russia and France are all calling for restraint in the conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan. The two countries last fought a war in 2020. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. Former New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson was in Moscow this week holding meetings with Russian leadership. Richardson privately works on behalf of families of hostages and detainees. The details around the meetings were not immediately clear. However, the trip comes as the Biden administration works to free two Americans who the State Department classifies as wrongfully detained, Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan. The spokesperson for the Richardson Center declined to comment on the story. A senior Biden administration official did comment, saying anyone going to Russia is going as a private citizen and they don't speak for the U.S. government. The administration has repeatedly said that working to secure the release of Griner, Whelan, and other Americans wrongfully detained abroad is a top priority. Border clashes between Armenia and Azerbaijan have killed at least 49 Armenian troops. The fighting has raised fears of another full-fledged war in the former Soviet Union. Russia, the U.S. and France have all called for restraint. The governments of Russia, the U.S. and France are all calling for restraint after fighting between Armenia and Azerbaijan on their shared border has killed at least 49 Armenian troops, according to the Armenian government and raised fear of another full-fledged war in former countries of the Soviet Union. Footage released by Armenia's defence ministry is said to show Azeri soldiers in an unidentified border area. Reuters can't independently verify either side's version of events. 
Azerbaijan says it was attacked by Armenia and sustained casualties without giving specific numbers. Armenia, however, says several towns on the border were shelled early Tuesday morning and that it responded to what it called a large-scale provocation. And in Parliament, its Prime Minister said that Azeri forces had attacked because Azerbaijan didn't want to negotiate over the status of disputed territory, Nagorno-Karabakh. That was at the centre of their last war in 2020. Russia is the main power broker in this area and has a military base in Armenia. But Azerbaijan is backed both militarily and politically by the Turkish government, a NATO member. The war they fought in 2020 lasted six weeks. Both Washington and Moscow, already dealing with the Ukraine war, issued statements stating any conflict needed to be resolved diplomatically, although Turkey called for Armenia to, quote, cease its provocations. The last conflict was another chapter in decades of hostilities between the countries. It ended with Azerbaijan making significant territorial gains and Russian peacekeepers deployed to the area. Greenhouses have helped make the Netherlands the second biggest agricultural exporter in the world, but now Europeans may be getting fewer out-of-season fruits and vegetables on their shelves as the energy crisis could see many businesses fail. And today's Joy Felix has more. Greenhouse owner Peter Viney would like to focus on growing vegetables, but since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, his life has revolved around gas and electricity prices rather than his red and yellow bell peppers or mini cucumbers. You know, in a greenhouse like this, you, in the winter times, you need to heat it. His 32-hectare facility in the southern Dutch province of Limburg grows 11 million kilograms of bell peppers per year, many of which end up in German supermarkets. Yeah, when the prices are going up and, and, and it will be much more than, than we are used to, then, yeah, then we have to change our plans. So we must plant less area in the winter. So the, my plans and at the moment is, for, I think 50% of the acreage will, will be uh, grown and, and the rest will be empty in our greenhouses. With Russia restricting gas supplies in response to Western sanctions over its invasion of Ukraine, European prices have soared to 20 times the level of a year ago. Until recently, Dutch greenhouses used about 8% of the national total of gas. Greenhouses have helped make the Netherlands the world's second largest agriculture exporter after the United States. But the £7 billion industry grew up with the cheap gas and is now facing a crisis that will hasten a switch to other energy sources and could see many businesses fail. Industry Group Klassenbau, Netherlands, say up to 40% of its 3,000 members are in financial distress. That could mean fewer out-of-season fruit, vegetables and flowers in European supermarkets, and production shifting to warmer countries such as Spain, Morocco and Kenya. Some greenhouses have invested in biomass for warmth, though wood is becoming more expensive or unavailable. Some larger greenhouses like vinyls, have on-site cogeneration plants that burn gas to create both heat and electricity. Many greenhouses need heat more than electricity and can sell excess power during peak demand. Vinyl says that gas cogeneration facilities are currently a lifeline. 
I do not need all the electricity, but the market needs the, the expensive electricity. So we make electricity, sell it to the grid, and then the heat is sometimes quite, ex uh, yeah, sometimes quite cheap for me. Observers say that the current crisis was likely to reshape the industry with the trend towards local production. Joy Felix, NTD News. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And still to come, Italian cooks are insistent on the right way to boil pasta, but some chefs are concerned about rising gas and electricity bills, and they're tempted to cut corners. And tableware maker Duralex plans to stop production for at least four months. The CEO says it's the only choice given the high energy costs in France where the company is based. We'll have all that and more for you in just a minute. Good to have you back with us. Thousands of people continue to leave floral tributes to the Queen in Green Park near Buckingham Palace. The display is growing ever larger as people pay their respects ahead of the Queen's funeral next Monday. And today's Jane Whirl has more for us. As you can see behind me, this is a stunning display of flowers left here in tribute to Her Majesty the Queen. Now, among the flowers are heartfelt messages, British flags and Paddington bears. And this is, of course, a nod to the comedy sketch that the Queen did with Paddington Bear during the Jubilee celebrations. The Royal Parks, however, has suggested not to bring any more Paddington bears or marmalade sandwiches. What you can't see here, though, is the fresh smell of the flowers, which have been left here by thousands of people. Emotional, but also... As you look around, you see the, the joy that she brought to people and that makes your heart sing a little bit. All right, so it's almost, I mean, it's a really sad time, but it's a kind of uplifting it good is. memories, yes. really. Yes, it is. The, the memories of, I mean, I've never actually met her, as many people seem to have done, um, but she's always been there in my life. Um, my mum, you know, she always talked about the Queen um, and then obviously my dad, you know, and they, they all loved her. Um, yeah, so it is. It makes you sad, but the messages are just wonderful, just wonderful. I've had to keep my dog away from so many of the marmalade sandwiches as I walk round. <laughs> you made a picture of a crown, didn't you? Mm -hmm. And you just put some, what did you put down? Flowers. <laughs> yeah? Yeah. I think that's it, isn't it? He's just finding somewhere else for his other picture, aren't you? It's quite emotional, isn't it? And overwhelming, definitely. This. It's lovely seeing all the messages from all over the world. Like. I brought the uh, chrysanthemums, right? Uh, I'm originally from Latvia and these are, I would say, traditional flowers that you bring to your funeral. So that's why I brought them here. The atmosphere is surprisingly quiet. I like that everyone is paying respects and like being respectful towards uh, one another. I haven't seen like uh, anyone pushing each other or anything like that. Um, yeah, everyone is just respecting each other. There'll be a one-minute silence across the UK at 8pm on Sunday night, the night before the Queen's funeral on Monday the 19th of September. Jane Worrell, NTD News, London. Top leaders from around the globe are expected at Queen Elizabeth II's funeral next week, but Russian President Vladimir Putin won't be one of them. Although the full invitation list has not yet been finalized, the British government confirmed that Putin will not be invited due to his invasion of Ukraine.
Belarus and Myanmar officials have also been ruled out of the guest list. The palace sends invitations to state funerals on the advice of the government after members of the civil and diplomatic services have considered the political implications of inviting certain leaders. Typically, every country that the United Kingdom has normal diplomatic relations with would be invited to a state funeral. Elsewhere in Europe, Google suffers its second setback in less than a year. One of the EU's top courts agrees with antitrust regulators that the company abused its dominance. Google challenged a $2 billion fine last year and lost. Today, they lost a challenge to a $4 billion fine. The court agreed that Google used unlawful means to keep its search engine dominant on mobile phones. The tech giant paid Android manufacturers and mobile network operations to promote Google search and restrict other options. The ruling is a boost for the EU antitrust chief following setbacks in cases involving other tech giants this year. Google says it acted like other businesses and that its actions help keep Android a free operating system. Google could appeal to another of Europe's highest courts. It may become a little harder to buy sturdy drinking glasses. French tableware maker Duralex plans to pause manufacturing over high energy costs. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more on the company's plans for the future. Duralex is known in France and beyond for its glasses that rarely break. For many, the 77-year-old brand holds sentimental value. In France, this is a brand that has an emotional pull. Duralex is a brand that belongs not to the investors of this company, not to its owners. It belongs to everyone. It belongs to all French people. It belongs to all customers everywhere in the world in the 110 countries where we deliver today. It belongs to all of them. It's highly charged with emotion. Like many companies across Europe, the brand is facing record high energy prices due to the war in Ukraine. Electricity prices for the last quarter and the beginning of next year would have been inexplicable, brutal, crazy prices that would not allow production to continue under normal conditions. This is why we decided to put the oven on standby. The company has six months of stock, but the cost of energy Duralex needs for its oven is doubling from October to November. It's economically irrational, financially irrational. Continuing to produce under these conditions would have jeopardized the sustainability of the company and would have especially jeopardized the sustainability of jobs. Production will stop in November, and the staff of 250 will be placed on temporary leave. Samuel Bachelar works in the packaging department. He's one of the young employees who will be on furlough. We are a bit worried, but we also feel rather positive. It will allow the company to save money a bit, to release some inventory. We hope that it will be over quickly and we can go back to normal production. Looking ahead, Duralex is seeking alternatives to gas for its oven. The company hopes to resume production next year. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. The surging energy prices are also in Italy. Debate on how to cook pasta and save on energy is sparking outrage among Italian cooks. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the controversy. A majority of Italians think that cooking pasta without a burning flame is heresy. But Italian households and restaurant owners are concerned about rising gas and electricity bills. Well, yes, pasta can cook by itself, without a flame. If you reach the 100 degrees Celsius boiling temperature, you can turn the flame off and the pasta will continue cooking, but it will cook really badly. Luigina Pantalone's family has been running the Sabatino restaurant in central Rome for almost 100 years. She doesn't think that saving on gas is a viable solution for her business. 
We were just getting out from the pandemic that really knocked us out. And just now that we are working and making some profits, we are suffering the increase of gas bills and energy. This is creating a lot of problems to our business management because we're trying not to change our prices, but I'm not sure for how long we will resist. The gas price did decrease slightly over the past few days, but energy markets analyst Gabriel Messini is cautious. We must wait and see if it becomes a solid trend. Only a few days ago, we were at 300 euros per megawatt hour. Today, we are at 200. It is a very, very nervous performance of this index. Retired cook Aurora Farina experimented in her kitchen to settle the pasta debate. She used both cooking methods simultaneously. The result, she said, was indisputable. Pasta has to be cooked with an active flame under the pot. No, the result cannot be the same, because this way, without a flame, we are macerating the pasta. We're not cooking it. Boiling water is necessary to keep the cooking pasta at a constant temperature. For traditionalists, there's an easy tip to save on energy. Keep the lid on the pot while you bring the water to a boil. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Coming up, bars in Tokyo are competing to see who can offer the best non-alcoholic drinks. Patrons are enjoying the social experience without the health consequences. Find out more in just a minute. A new bar in Tokyo offers elaborate drinks without the alcohol. The popularity of non-alcoholic drinks is on the rise worldwide. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the trend. At Sumidori Bar, drinkers and teetotalers can enjoy a drink together. The menu includes sugary mocktails and cocktails with alcohol level capped at 3%. According to government figures, just under 8% of Japanese people in their 20s were regular drinkers in 2019. That's compared with about 20% of that age group in 1999. There are fewer drinking parties at my university club, so I don't hear about drinking opportunities nowadays. Maybe that's why there are fewer people drinking. Alcoholic beverages have a strong taste of alcohol. I can't drink that much, so non-alcoholic drinks are easier to drink. Bars are coming up with new ways to improve the experience for non-drinkers. And no alcohol beer gardens are growing in popularity. Beer gardens are a summer tradition in Japan, but Suntory in Tokyo skipped the beer, offering patrons a lineup of mocktails and non-alcoholic wine instead. The business manager says people enjoy the atmosphere. Consumers at bars don't just enjoy the alcoholic beverages. We think they value more the communication that's generated, that's generated when drinking. We would like to recommend our beverages including non-alcoholic drinks for those occasions. Competitor Kieran Holdings also offers non-alcoholic wines, cocktails and beer. The company says sales of its alcohol-free beer more than doubled this spring compared with a year ago. If I have to get up early the next day and I think, oh, I should hold off on drinking, but I still want to drink and want to feel like I'm drinking, then I will go for a non-alcoholic drink when I'm drinking alone. Japanese drink makers are turning to exports to grow their market, but traditional bars with stiff drinks still live on among the older generations in Japan. 
Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Back in the U.S., four Kentuckians have earned a Guinness World Record and helped out those in need. They now hold the record for the most holes of miniature golf in 24 hours by a foursome. In July, they played over 100 rounds and had more than 14,000 strokes and powered through 2,097 holes. They smashed the previous record by over 600 holes. But this putt-putt game wasn't just for fun. The four encouraged donations for Matthew 25 Ministries, which helped after the devastating floods that hit the state last month. They raised almost $3,000 for the group. The International Humanitarian and Disaster Relief Organization also says that it saw a surge in donations around the time of the game. And over in Australia, an elderly man has died after being attacked by his pet kangaroo. This took place at the man's home in Redmond, Western Australia. A relative found the 77-year-old man with serious injuries on Sunday and called paramedics to the man's property. The Western Australian Police Force said officers were forced to shoot the kangaroo dead because it was posing an ongoing threat to emergency responders. Police say they believed it was a wild animal that the man had attempted to keep as a pet. Government data says that on average, kangaroos kill 37 Australians every year. Australian agencies have warned that kangaroos can cause serious injuries to humans. And two new jaguar cubs were recently born in the wetlands in Argentina. This is after efforts to stop the extinction of this endangered species. Footage from camera traps shows that the first jaguar released at the Ibera Park in 2021 had two jaguar cubs. The Rewilding Foundation specializes in the preservation of endangered species. It launched a repopulation project in January 2021. They have reintroduced jaguars to the Ibera wetlands. The birth and survival of these two cubs bolster the bid to reverse the trend of extinction in the region. The Rewilding Foundation estimates there are only 250 jaguars living in the wild in Argentina. And that's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City. 